0: Tonight, then, our final is our final class, and we're going to be entering into a conversation about how important it is to read the Bible as a literary book, and in particular, to learn to read the Bible according to what we call its genre. So genre is the word we use for... I'll just call it types of literature. So types of literature. I'll use some examples from um, uh, just daily life. So a news, newspaper. Uh, and We have something called an email now. An email. We could even say a text message. Uh, a novel. A love letter. and we could keep going on, but these are common ones. Every one of these kinds of literature is a different genre. It has its own rules, its own notions, its own principles. A little example would be in text messaging, a lot of abbreviation. In a love letter, very personal, one person to another person. In a newspaper, here's the facts. So in... Uh, in a novel, generally, you're dealing with fiction. So, in eng- the English language, we have these genres and many, many, many more, and we read them all differently. But here's the thing: we're we're normally not conscious of that. We just know. We, you know intuitively to read a love letter differently than a newspaper. You intuitively know to read. A science textbook differently than a history textbook well in the in the Bible even though we call it the Bible that's one word the Bible not the Bibles there are 66 different books and each of those books is falls into a literary genre now there's not 66 different kinds of genre but there's at least a dozen or so so as you're reading the Bible instead of reading everything with the same notions you need to learn to read the Bible as literature. So tonight, if we were doing this for like 10 weeks, I would I could do like two a night, two a night, two a night, but we're just going to look at two of the most common commonly used genre among people who are just reading the Bible for personal benefit or for Bible study. We're going to look at how to how to interpret parables and how to interpret proverbs. And If you want to look at how to interpret epistles and how to interpret apocalyptic literature and poetry and psalm, I would really recommend you read uh, the relevant sections in the Fee and Stewart book that I recommended, okay? So the Bible contains uh, different types of literature known as genre. Each genre has its own interpretive rules that must be applied to interpret the text properly, and I've listed some there, Uh, parable proverb, narrative that's an, another genre. Acts we call it the book of Acts but the book of Acts is actually its own genre especially out of the New Testament books. Gospel go, we talk about the gospel, the heart of the gospel is the message but gospel is actually a kind of literature too. There are other gospels outside of the Bible. Now what I mean what I don't mean by that is other sources of salvation. But if, you, if I use the word gospel as a genre, all the other gospels that they dig up, the gospel of Judas and the gospel of this guy and that guy, are they're in the same genre. They're in the category of literature called gospel. And then there's apocalyptic. So that's the visionary stuff you'll see in Matthew 7 to 12 and in Revelation in particular. And in Ezekiel, a little bit in Ezekiel. Uh, psalms that's its own genre and we have a, a book in our bible called the psalms wisdom literature so for biblical purposes that would include uh, books like job song of solomon uh, proverbs and then proverbs has also a subgenre. certain psalms would also fall into that category and ecclesiastes those are wisdom literature they're they they communicate Okay, this wise wise old sage who's lived a long life, very knowledgeable, very, made a lot of mistakes, a lot of uh, good choices, and he's the, the imagery you're supposed to have when you're reading wisdom literature is like you're, you're on the floor, uh, you're a bunch of little kids, and the wise old man comes in with his long white beard and his cane, and he sits in his rocking chair and pulls up his little Scottish tartan, and he begins to speak. And he speaks words of wisdom and experience. That's how wisdom literature comes through. And then prophecy, which is a combination of policing the past and pointing to the future. So those are some different literary genres. We're going to look at, to get us going, interpreting parables. Now we know that the parables, parabolic, we call it, literature in the Bible is found predominantly in what books? the gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John so while the gospels is a genre the gospels have subgenres in them they have parable they have some songs like Mary's song or Mary's prayer so they have some and they also have some apocalyptic so we have genre that sometimes has subgenres in it now if you look at the synoptic gospels the synoptic gospels are what three books Okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why don't we include John in the Synoptic Gospels? What makes John a little different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Yeah. yeah. John is more like theologically crafted. So right away he gets into his discussion with the word being made flesh. And he just kind of takes more of a theological doctrinal rundown. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to be more historically oriented. They start with who Jesus is, his family lineage, his birth, and kind of work through it almost not quite, but chronologically. They're more uh, biographical, whereas John has more of a theological flavor. And we also call them the synoptics because Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell many of the same episodes that the other two tell. So the Synoptic Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you look at Jesus' teaching within the Synoptics, of course not all of it is Jesus' teaching, there's some commentary by the writer, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but about one-third of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels comes to us in the form of parable. So that means we should probably know a little bit about parable, because if you're reading about Jesus, he speaks a lot in parables the The word parable is uh, a Greek word, um, so parable. Those are the English letters, and this occurs 50 times in the New Testament. So we're just looking at the definition of the word. This is obviously the word from which we get parable. It can mean uh, a type, a figure. Or an illustration, but essentially, it's referring to comparison. So, intrinsic to the word parable is the idea of comparison. Something is being, again, speaking in general generalities. When you're reading a parable, you're being told something, and it's a comparison to something else. This is very important when we're when we're reading parable. Uh, other passages they're just telling you something but in parable they're telling you something and it is being compared to something else so what is the something else that's what we want to arrive at due to their nature parables have been perhaps perhaps the most misinterpreted form of literature in the bible maybe next to revelation revelation's been played around with a lot maybe next to revelation parable has been hugely abused And what often happens, especially with the parables where Jesus doesn't tell it and then tell you what it means, people make up their own meaning. And even men like St. Augustine, which we often speak well of, came up with some crazy fanciful explanations, uh, very allegorical interpretations of the parables that I would say even one of our junior high students would pick out as pretty erroneous if they were listening to it preached that way in a church sermon. Like very fanciful stuff. So we need to be a little bit careful then how we handle parables. It can't just mean whatever you want it to mean. So what is the purpose and the nature of parables then? Well, here's uh, four points I'd like to present. The first is, is that parables, this is very key, are earthy. I'm not necessarily using the word earthly, (laughs) as in carnal or something. But earthy stories with a heavenly meaning. Why, why do you think I'm calling them earthy? What are some common elements that you'll see in parables? Earthy elements. Everyday life. Everyday life. So what what kinds of everyday life do you see in the parables? Farming, Farming especially in an agrarian culture, that's a common one. Mm-hmm. Business, negotiations, yep. Yeah. Pardon me? Cleaning. Okay, cleaning, sweeping. Vapor. Yeah. Labors, a lot of social uh, commentary. You got the widow, you got the rich man, you got the servants, you got the landowners. A lot of social cons- contracts that are spoken of. Uh, anything else? Um, sometimes you'll have animal life referenced, or seeds, or plants, but they have a heavenly meaning attached to them. And when we mean heavenly, we don't mean stuff that's only relevant in heaven. But there's a spiritual meaning attached to these earthly stories. So Jesus starts with everyday experiences. So a common thread then in the parables is that they use everyday experiences to draw parallels to kingdom truths. Jesus' teaching is largely about the kingdom of God. This is a very important clue for your ability to understand the New Testament as a whole, and in fact, in some ways, the whole of the Bible. If you learn the kingdom language of the Bible, you start to think of Jesus as a king. You start to think of Jesus' uh, kingly reign or God's kingly reign through the theocracy that we know is Israel and all of its pluses and minuses. We see Jesus coming, all of his emphasis on the kingdom of God, even in his crucifixion, the, the symbolism of the robe, the symbolism of the, the crown of thorns, the irony there, um, the, uh, the, 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 the sort of the what we call the now but not yet aspects to the kingdom of God. How there's a sense in which Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God in his ministry, but there's also futuristic dimensions to it. If you start to think about all those kingdom-type elements, it it really brings the whole New Testament to life and provides um, a a center to the Bible, an overarching theme that kind of pulls it all together uh, in the Bible. Uh, So he's talking about kingdom truths using uh, earthly, everyday experiences. Sometimes... And I think we mentioned this a week or two ago. Sometimes the parables are designed to hide truth. From who? Unbelievers or believers, as in Jewish believers, who had hard hearts and therefore weren't tender to the things of God. And you want an example of that would be Mark chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. So why, why did Jesus sometimes withdraw truth from unbelievers to confirm their ignorance. This is very important, to confirm their ignorance. Now, one could say there's a damnable element to that too, but the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests is they were know-it-alls. They were arrogant, which is like the ultimate irony when it comes to spirituality in any religion, by the way. Uh, Every religion in some way, shape, or form teaches that there's some inadequacy in you, that the gods or the god or the pantheon of gods is supposed to help you with or fix or save you from. So being that that's the starting point for man's search for religious truth, to bring arrogance and pride to it is ridiculous. And yet we see in... Uh, Judaism and in Christianity, that happening as well. So Jesus withholds truth to sort of, in a sense, doubly damn them. Not only are they damned because of their sin, but he's pointing to the fact how ignorant they are. So that when they go away scratching their heads, I don't know what he just meant, Jesus has made his point as they scratch their heads that they don't know everything. Now, parables are also meant, meant to catch your attention, much like a joke does. So in a joke, there's something said, and then there's generally a punchline. And it's the punchline that the unexpected or the twist or the, 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 uh, the fascinating thought or the playfulness of the joke that makes you laugh. Now, not all parables are laughable, but the parable is meant to capture your attention, arrest your attention. So if we are interpreting them, and we're doing it as an academic exercise, which in part we should be doing, but we fail to allow it to, what I'll just call, grab us, then we've, we've not really appreciated the nature of the parable. So here are some themes and stylistic elements to parables. Thanks. Some of them I'm repeating from the points I've already given, but I'll give them to you nevertheless. Earthiness, so we gave several examples of that. Secondly, they're concise. You're not going to read a parable that's like 18 pages long. They're sh- kind of short and sweet. Sometimes only a few sentences. Sometimes maybe a paragraph or two. In uh, Luke 15, there's three parables. They're all parallel. Um, the lost coin, the lost what, sheep, and the lost son. And the lost son, some of us grew up, he was called the prodigal son. Um, That's probably one of the longer parables in the Bible. And it's still within a chapter with two other parables thrown in. They're all kind of built up. So that's another aspect of parables. Sometimes we see one parable leading into another, leading into another. And the classic example of that is Luke 15. Luke 15, it's all about something that's lost, that's been found. And you really can't fully appreciate the prodigal son unless you've read the prodigal coin, if you will, or the prodigal sheep, right? So we have um, a conciseness to them. Uh, third, uh, there's, there's often repetition. So we got all these seeds falling here and there and everywhere in the parable of the sower. And uh, there's an element of repetition there. The conclusion is often but not always at the end. So Jesus will often say, uh, he'll tell you a parable and then he'll give you like the eureka moment at the end of the parable. The fifth element of parables is they're extremely practical. And in that sense, they demand a response from the listener or the reader in our situation. You know, some uh, passages of the Bible, they're more like a, they speak truth, but there's not necessarily like a definitive action point attached. But they maybe give you an impression about God or an impression about yourself or a kind of a sense of encouragement. But the parables are extremely pragmatic. They demand a response from you. Am I lost? Have I rebelled against God? Am I the guy running the other direction? Um, which seed am I? You know, Am I receptive to hear God's words? So they, they're very practical. This is why they're very useful for teaching to kids, adults. They're great. You can teach them to believers, unbelievers, because they demand a response. They very much grab hold of you. There is a focus in, I don't know if I'm going to say all, although if I said all, I wouldn't feel I'd be misspeaking. Most, if not all, of the parables on God's rule or God's kingdom somehow implied or explicit God owns you is it an idea that often comes true, if not always comes through in the parables then we have um, an emphasis on ethics so I've shared this many many times for some of you this is an old hat but if it's new to any of you and helpful or a good reminder I'll share it again so Christianity, okay? What holds up Christianity? So, what we often speak of, this is not Xing Jesus out, this is the first letter in his name, okay? X is Christian, okay? It's from Jesus' name. So, Christianity, um, we have the three elements. This means God's word. So we talk about theology. That means content. Okay? So content of faith is one of the legs that holds up our faith. We have to have the content right. These are in no particular order. Um, I'll put, just for the sake of the drawing, I'll put the next one over here. Then we have apologetics. What's apologetics? Okay, so this is the defense. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. That was Peter's message to the church. So the content of the faith, the defense of the faith, heart and head. Peter brings that together nicely. Give an answer to the hope. Answer is a head word, and hope is a heart word. Method, gentleness, and respect. So theology, we've got to have good content, we've got to have a good defense, and the third leg is what? We call it ethics. Now ethics, the word ethics in modern day conversation has often been reduced to What do you think about capital punishment? What do you think about just war? What's your theory on war? What's your theory on um, reproductive ethics, uh, reproductive technology? So it's often sort of like the cerebral practicalities of our faith, but in actual fact, the word ethics is simply about the practice of our faith. So the practice of our faith asks all sorts of moral questions. So this is a moral question. You know, is it right to steal? Is it right to gamble? Is it, you know, any moral question falls into here. So for Christianity to be stable needs good content, proper practice, and needs to be defensible. Now, in the Bible, certain genres tend to dump more information into each of those legs. Certain books are heavily moralistic, and they just give you a lot of practice stuff, a lot of how-tos. Others are more uh, defensive, and some are more content-oriented in terms of theology. In the parables, they're going to help you in the middle leg. They're heavily oriented towards ethics, practice, How to live in relationship to one another and in relationship to God as a citizen of the new kingdom, God's kingdom. And then there's an emphasis on salvation in the parables. There's a call to become a citizen of the kingdom. And several of them uh, really bring that uh, out very loud and clear. One of the questions that is often asked in relationship to parables is the question, are they real? Like, was there really a prodigal son? Was there really a widow that Jesus met or knew of that had a coin that she lost and swept her house for? Was there like really a guy that was scattering his seeds everywhere and maybe Jesus saw it and took some notes? Uh, Are they real? Now, the reason why we like to ask this question is because usually we want to like defend the truthfulness of the Bible. But let me ask you this, can something be fictional and be true at the same time? Like, Would it, would it be permissible for Jesus to tell a fictional story and for the Bible to still be inerrant? Josh says yes. Everyone else is too nervous. Okay, Don, he's stepping out. Don's stepping out. Anybody else want to step out? Okay, Kathy. I would say yes, as long as the genre allows for it. Like if Jesus says, okay, I'm going to tell you a historical fact, and then he tells you fiction, then you have a problem. But if the genre allows for an illustration to be given that may or may not have literally happened in Jesus' eyewitness. Who was an eyewitness to it? There's no problem with that. So, the question of the parables real, I'm going to suggest to you, is a moot point. It's an unnecessary question. It doesn't matter. Because whether there was a prodigal son that went through those particular antics or not doesn't negate in any way, shape, or form the parable. Now, that doesn't work with other literature. If the stories of Acts are fictional, we have a big problem because the genre of Acts is history. If at least the narratives of Genesis uh, are fictional, we have a big problem. If If there was never a guy named Adam and never a woman named Sarah, and they're just sort of made up to illustrate a point, then we have a problem. But the nature of parables actually allow for fiction. Now, if you read the parables, what you'll notice is that the basic elements in the parables are probably ones that you've experienced too. So you may not literally have swept your house for a coin, but uh, my son Josiah was scouring through our vehicle tonight because he lost his mother's debit card. Still hasn't found it. Okay. Don't ever send your kid to the bank. So he says he l- lost it. Maybe he... If she starts noticing withdrawals. Um, yeah, if he moves out quickly, suddenly makes a big vehicle purchase or something. So, um, we, we know people who have wandered far from faith. We all know people like that. Now, so, When when Jesus is telling, let's say, to use the prodigal son parable, which is one of my favorites, probably one of your favorites too, it's very powerful. A lot of art's been painted on the prodigal son. Uh, For sure, there have been people like the prodigal son, like in very specific ways. But whether there was a guy that literally moved to another country and was eaten in a pig pen or not, that Jesus was thinking of, it doesn't matter to the nature of the parable. So I'm, I'm stressing that because if you're ever challenged as to the historicity of the parables, you don't, you don't need to defend them. It doesn't matter. The, the genre of literature allows for fiction or historicity or a combination of both, and they still are accurate and true, and the Bible is still inerrant. Just like, uh, we'll talk about this later tonight, but a proverb might be promissory, and it might not be. It doesn't have to be a promise in order to function as a proverb. So the, the, um, you know, the proverb, "Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart." That's not a promise. And if it is a promise, we have a huge issue, because I know a lot of very upstanding Christians who've had wayward children through no fault of their own. It's not a promise. Proverbs aren't by definition promises. But if they're preached as promises, well, then you're going to start shipwreck, shipwrecking a lot of people's faith. It's a generality. It's generally true. It's generally true that if you raise up a child according to their bent and the ways of the Lord, they're going to turn out okay. But it's not a, it's, it's a, a locked lock down promise. I mean, there's a Holy Spirit thing going on there, too, that you have no control over. And we'll give some examples of that later. Another um, question that's often asked, and these are issues of authenticity, is um, are the are the parables allegories? Well, um, if you skip down to 3C, I, I can't remember exactly how many. I When I did my notes, I took a lot of it out, so it would force you to write things in, but I'm not sure how much information you have. But you have a section called 3C that says allegory. Okay, is there anything under that? Okay, so... Here's a definition from Osborne. So an allegory paints a series of pictures in metaphorical form, all of which combine in a parabolic fashion. Uh, the details have symbolic significance with many different thrusts. So you don't need to write all that down, but I'm just saying that an allegory is basically, okay, think of it as a story, but the chara- if there's characters, the characters are sort of symbolic of something else. The... Um, maybe if there's animals in it. The animals are symbolic of something else. The the uh, the geographical locations are symbolic of something else. Maybe the colors that are mentioned are symbolic of something else. So an allegory is where something is said, uses some sort of a story-like statement, but everything or most of the stuff in it is allegorical. I'll give you an example that I think most of you will understand. The Lord of the Rings books are allegories. Okay, so you have this Christian guy writing them, and I don't know if every single detail has a point of connection, some spiritual or earthly truth, but many of them do. Many, if not most, of the characters or clusters of characters are allegorical, and you sort of catch wind of that, because every once in a while you'll see like a a little bit of biblical language sneaking in there, like Ancient of Days applied to one of the characters. These kinds of like Bible-type uh, phrases are slipping into the, the novels. And um, in that sense, one of the, from what I understand, one of the motivations or desires of, of uh, Tolkien was to communicate uh, to children and young people the essence of of the basic biblical concepts, but in a way that was sort of cloaked, maybe not so obvious, right? So the themes of good and evil and the lure of sin and its temptation, its overwhelming power with the ring and all this stuff are all sort of weaved in there. And so the the movie makers actually did us a great favor in the last 12 or 13 years in producing those movies because they shape worldviews they shape consciousness. They bring back into the Western mind ideas of good and evil and triumph and temptation and allurement. But people aren't necessarily fully conscious of that, right? But it still plants seeds. So then the question is, um, if are the parables allegories? Well, um, here's the thing. They are, in many respects but that doesn't permit you then to take them and allegorize them beyond their allegorical form. So if the lost son is in some ways a symbol of spiritually bankrupt people, uh, the allegory is the lost son, the heavenly meaning is the lost sinner but what you can't do is take the lost son and allegorize him into Hitler or a political figure or a specific person that the text doesn't allow you to, uh, to do. So you, just because the, the parables are at some points allegorical, you have allegory, but your job is to come up with the non-allegorical meaning. Your job is not to take the allegory and make it into another allegory. Okay, I hope that makes sense to you. But to extract the heavenly meaning or the takeaway truth. Now, obviously, there's degrees of allegory. I mean, some of the, um, some of the parables are more allegorical than others. Um, and, you know, you might have uh, you people even named in a parable, for instance or very specific detail that it's you know it's very clear Jesus is talking about this group of people or that group of people other times you you might not be so sure i think he's talking about the pharisees but you know maybe he's just talking about spiritually snotty people in general so just be generally aware of the fa- of the idea that while it might be allegorical your job is not to allegorize it it's to try to find the more literal meaning within it So here's some types of parables. Uh, I'll give you four, and then I'll give you some illustrations, uh, some examples of them from the New Testament. So the first type is called a similitude. And uh, Osborne, uh, I'll I'll give you three different definitions uh, from three different writers. So Osborne says a similitude. Do you have similitude, true parable, allegory, and parabolic saying in your notes? Okay, so a similitude is a straightforward comparison with one or more verbs in the present tense applying a common experience or typical habit to a greater spiritual reality. Linneman says similitudes find power in their imagery. Fee and Stewart write illustrations that are taken from everyday life that Jesus used to make a point. Let's go to Mark 4. Mark chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 30 to 32. So we're looking for straightforward comparisons here. And he said, with what can we compare. There's that word, right? Parabole, comparison. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? So you're thinking, I want to know what the kingdom of God's about. Well, let me try to help you understand that. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for? Now, this is a, like, a really obvious one. It sets us up, tells us exactly why he's given the parable, and it kind of like defines what a parable is for us. It is like a grain of mustard seed, very small, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So that's a similitude. Now, what you want to be careful about is how far you press the details. So if Jesus says the king of God, is like a mustard seed, which grows into this massive tree. Well, he minimally, he's communicating something to the effect that the king of God is hidden, maybe not so obvious, but it's on the grow, and it's going to become obvious soon. Something like that. But what you're probably not supposed to do is try to identify the meaning of the branch and the bird and the species of bird and who that bird might be and whether the bird built a nest in it or not or you know whether it's a meat-eating bird or a seed-eating bird. Then you're sort of take you're maybe looking for stuff that you're not you're not supposed to be looking for. But minimally, small to big, there's something there you got to wrestle with. Let's go to Mark 13, verses 28 to 29. From the fig tree learn its lesson, uh, as Soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. Now, we all understand this. If you have trees in your property, like the, the, the new fresh shoots that come out, they are more tender. They don't have like the, the barky substance. They're, they're usually a little bit darker, and they sort of blend in with the rest of the tree after a season or two. But first, they're a little different. They're a little more tender. Uh so also, so notice the comparison there. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that it is near at the very gates. Well, whatever it is Jesus is talking about, which is something futuristic. He's using an illustration. So you know, you know how, you, you know that the seasons are changing when you see those new little fresh shoots on a tree. Okay, that's an image you got in your head. It's very earthy. Okay, let me tell you a spiritual truth now. When you see the following signs, you know the end is near. And then the rest of the passage sort of articulates and unpacks that, right? That's a similitude. There's no character in it per se, but it's a like as parable. Then we have a second form of parable, which is called a true parable, or a, you could call it like a full parable. It's, it's a little, little more fleshed out. A couple definitions as well for you. Uh, Osborne says, it's a narrative employing a particular event in the past tense without direct and obvious comparison. So notice how similitudes tend to be like present tense. True parables tend to be past tense. Like something took place back in the day, and let me tell you about a, let me use it to create a spiritual truth now. Lindemann says, the power of, it's the power of the story that attracts and holds one's attention. Fian Stewart says it's a story, pure and simple, with a beginning and an ending. It has something of a plot to it. Let's go to Luke 10. So Luke 10, and we're going to look at 25 to 37. Remember the good old Good Samaritan? Okay. We're not going to read all of it, but... Um, I want you to look at the intro. This is very important to look at. try to find what are the circumstances that gave rise to Jesus telling the parable. Let me say that again, very important. What are the circumstances that gave rise to Jesus telling the parable? This is going to be hugely helpful in interpreting its purpose. What was Jesus' purpose, as best as you can tell? Most people know the story of the Good Samaritan. Most people don't know the reason why it was told but notice verse 25 and behold a lawyer stood up to put him that is jesus to the test so who's the lawyer not like a modern modern like legislator we're talking about like a re- a religious lawyer a lawyer of leviticus a lawyer of the law this is a religious guy he's an expert in the law so the the story of the parable, if you will, of the Good Samaritan is a response to a test that Jesus was given by a religious expert. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is not a legitimate kind of question. This is not like a Nicodemus question. It's, it's a test. It's a challenge. Because if if, if this guy was legitimate and the real deal and really seeking out Christ, Jesus okay, well, let, let, me, let me summarize it for you. But Jesus then tells the parable of the Good Samaritan about how this guy gets beat up on the road to Jericho and one guy goes by and he ignores him, another guy goes by and he ignores him. And then the third unexpected character who you think would disdain him because ethnically they were clashing is the guy that helps him out, goes the extra mile and so forth and so on. Now, you know, because you've heard it so many times, that the guys that walk by are the guy symbolic of the guy that puts jesus to the test and so what is jesus doing the guy's like what shall i do to inherit eternal life jesus knows he doesn't believe he's a sinner he's righteous he's puffed up so instead of directly answering the question jesus ingeniously tells a parable to point out that he's a sinner because without an understanding of sin there's no reason or possibility for salvation, right? So Jesus tells the parable to um, to make the point. So then in verse 37, Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now this is not a gospel of works, but if you look at the whole context, it's not, oh, you want to inherit eternal life? Just go help people on the side of the road. Read the whole, con- think about what's going on. Think about, if you will, the psychology of the conversation, like put yourself in the place of the lawyer, and the place of Jesus who's all-knowing, what is going on in the lawyer's head that gives rise to the question, the nature of the question, how would he have emotionally and mentally responded to the parable? The go ye and do likewise statement is not, well, if you want to get to heaven, help go, help poor people. But it's pointing out the fact that this guy was not righteous and he thought he was. So that's the point of the parable. And of course you can sort of dredge the details for, for a lot more, uh, to make it even more explicit. But that's a true parable. Now then we have an allegory. So an allegory paint this is a particular kind of parable, an allegory paints a series of pictures in metaphorical form, all of which combine in parabolic fashion. The details have symbolic significance with many thrusts. That's from Osborne. Now, interestingly, if you read the Fee and Stewart book, they actually don't like the terminology allegory, and they sort of reject it as a category unto itself. But I'm comfortable... Uh, speaking of par- certain parables as allegory. So if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 22, um, the uh, this is the uh, parable of the wedding feast. And again, as I've mentioned several times now, it's kingdom oriented. So verse 2 is, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a kingdom, to a king rather, who gave a wedding feast for his sons, and he sends his servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast, but they don't come. Uh, so again, he sends other servants saying, uh, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner and oxen. He kind of goes through the menu. They don't pay any attention. Verse five. Verse seven, the king's angry. He sends his troops, destroys those murders, burns their cities. And uh, then again, issues a call. Now, This is an allegory in that, in a sense, it's a story. You could almost envision this happening. But several points in the story have meanings outside of their immediate context. So we have a king, presumably God, because it's a kingdom parable. Uh, We have those who've rejected the invitation, so that might be, uh, see how it's multi-pronged, it could be Israel. It could specifically be segments of Israel that didn't respond to the prophets. It could be modern Israelis from the perspective of Christ who had rejected his message. There's sort of several points of application that one could make from this parable. Generally speaking, um, I think we would all agree that there's something here about the fact that some people at least will reject the invitation to be part of the kingdom of God to their own chagrin. Um, so in that sense, it's maybe a little different than, let's say, a true parable like the prodigal son in that the prodigal son, you're probably not going to try to figure what does the pig mean uh, You know, what what are the the shucks, what are those supposed to represent? But in this parable, pretty much all the details probably have some literal meaning behind them. So every kind of guest, the invitation, the people delivering the invitation, there's probably some very real tie-in between those elements in the parable okay uh and I'll just give you a couple more references. You can look them up on your own John fifteen one to eight and Luke eight. those also contains contain allegories and then parabolic sayings well these are um like these are like statements, but they uh they're just real short. so you could if you want, you could just refer to parabolic sayings as metaphors or similes. But they are parabolic in a sense. They're, they're comparative. There's a heavenly dimension attached to them. Uh, the example I'll give you is Matthew 5:13. You are the salt of the earth, uh, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be uh, restored? It's no longer good for anything except be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So the, the idea of you are the salt of the earth is parabolic and that there's a direct comparison between salt and you, as a person who's on mission with God, as a citizen of the kingdom. Okay. Any questions uh, up till this point? Say it's a parable? When, mm. even a well, the headings are added, right? right. So, um, um, they no, like they wouldn't—they wouldn't necessarily always, always say they're a parable, but they're usually in response to a question that's been asked directly to Jesus um Who's the one with Lazarus? That was a weird one. Yeah. That that word, is that a, um That's sort of like that's sort of like debated okay. a lot as to Cuz it just started. It was talking about something else and it just started into that one without saying and there wasn't seem to be a debate point. Yeah, some some commentators believe that's parabolic. I, I tend to think it's probably not. Um because it's unique and that it identifies a person by name it tends to be quite specific in its language. It's, it's more of like a historical recall. But generally like a, a parable will start off with some question and some statement to the effect of uh, you know the kingdom the kingdom of God is like or some statement that implies Jesus is trying to communicate a kingdom truth. And if you look at the elements we've looked at so far, it'll contain one or more of those elements earthiness, the the tie-in. You'll you'll sort of know it. You'll sort of know it when you read it. They are distinct. They do sort of stand out. Another thing you look for in um, parables is uh, characters and themes. I think this is kind of fun to think about. So a few different character types Now, just to kind of get you thinking along these lines, I'll give you uh, two biblical names. Um, David. And let's use Judas. Okay, this is like the guy that's like, for lack of a better way of putting it, 90% bad and 10% good. This is the guy that's 90% good and 10% bad. So they're both sinners. Judas is not like without any redemptive qualities. I mean, he he did spend three years with Jesus, so he must there must have been something about him that allowed him to fit in for a while. But ultimately, he's not a believer and he's lost. David does some really bad stuff, but he's more or less a righteous man. However, apart from that, apart from whether they're good or bad, tell me everything you know about Judas. Good with money. He's good with money. What else do you know about Judas? Betrayed Jesus. Betrayed Jesus. He's Jewish. He's a disciple. He's male. He hung himself. Yeah, but that, that's really about it. I don't know anything about his upbringing, or I mean, it might list his dad's name. I don't know, I don't know anything about his story, his parentage, his what he did before he met Jesus. Uh, he's a one-dimensional character in the Bible, more or less, maybe a dimension and a half. Now. If I asked you the same question about David, we'd be here for a while. You know, like what he did as a kid, you know, the equivalent of the newspaper route that many of us had. He was the shepherd boy. You knew about some of the skirmishes he got in the field, you know, like the specific events that led up to his anointing as king, you know, the names of his brothers, his father, his mothers, you know, how he became the king, where he was the king, Hebron for seven years, Jerusalem for 33 years. You know the names of his sons. You actually know about his wives. What their, You get some insight into their personalities. You know his heart. You know about his sin. He is a multifaceted character in the Bible. Now, this does not mean that Judas wasn't a multifaceted character. It's just you don't know them, the other facets. They're not given to you. So in this sense, in literature, uh, there are... Different types of characters given. Some are very multidimensional, more or less. Some are very limited. But they are meant to function. Think of their functionality. They're meant to function in a certain way in the parable. Just as characters are in stories. So the universal... uh, the, The first one I want to mention is the universal character types. So... A universal character type is a character, generally nameless, that has universal appeal. There's something about this kind of person that everybody in the room can relate to, regardless of culture or gender or background universal character type you know the bad guy uh the the prideful person you know the guy that has a huge ego you're going to find those kind of people in the parables you don't need to know what their name was you don't need to know what the samaritan's name was you don't need to know what the religious ruler's name was that walked by it's not relevant the focus is not on well, who is this guy? The focus is on the character type. They typify a person either that you are or were or might become or that you know. This is a universal character type. And again, with few exceptions, they are anonymous. There's no name attached, no details. They're one, they're like there's a, a one facet even less than what you get with Judas. You just learn a very limited thing about that person, but they function in a powerful way in the event. Then there are what we call archetypes. Now An archetype isn't necessarily a person, but an archetype is a reoccurring image or motif that touches us powerfully. Here are four. Slavery or slave. Uh, Most of us are touched powerfully by the word slave. The word word slave always has emotion attached to it. I mean, I don't know if I could speak for a five-year-old child, but those of us that have studied history, and see what's going on in the world. Um, there's emotion attached to the word slave. It's an archetype and it is a recurring theme in the parables. A master. Now, the word master can be used negatively or positively in the parables because it could typify Christ or God, or it could typify someone who's abusing his underlings. Security security is a powerful motif in all cultures we all long for security spiritual security social security family security um we long for security in our country security is a very powerful theme injustice or the opposite justice injustice is very powerful um Maybe based upon your upbringing, you might be a little bit more of a justice person than another person is. I'm a justice person. I'm not sure I knew that when I was younger, but based upon the way I was raised, maybe elements of my personality, I'm a justice guy. Okay, I'm in the business of justice. And um, like I'm very moved. If if someone is being victimized, it makes me furious. Like I want to go Old Testament on them. And uh, maybe that's be like part of being the oldest brother and trying to keep the family together when daddy left. Maybe there's some of that. Again, maybe there's some theological element. But justice is very important for me. Right and wrong. Is it right or is it wrong? Is that person's actions, are they right or wrong? Justice. Now, in some ways, we're all impacted by that. Again, personality. Scale of 1 to 10, you might be a 10, a 9, an 8, whatever. But justice is a powerful theme in culture. And justice is a theme that comes up a lot in Scripture. And then, a third theme is hyperbole. Probably like thinking of grade 12 English class, right? It's all coming back. I may have studied some of this stuff. Well, it's in the Bible too. What is hyperbole? Basically, it's an overstatement. Think of, I don't know if this is where the word comes from, but think of a parable, a hyperparable, an overstatement, an overcomparison. So these are points of exaggeration for storytelling purposes. So what would be some examples of this? Vast amounts of possessions. Who cares whether the person actually had it or not? The hyperbole is there for a reason. Rounded numbers. Rounded numbers. Okay, we should be okay with rounded numbers, by the way. I'm pretty sure if you read the opening chapter of Job, and you know it talks about ten thousand of this, a hundred thousand of this, or fifty thousand of this, you know he might have had like fifty thousand and three, or ten thousand and sixty-two, or ninety-nine thousand five hundred sixty-eight. They're rounded. Okay, and it's not a lie. It's rounded to make the point. You, you, you get the information you need. You don't get information you don't need. There's no throwaway lines in the Bible. So hyperbole is another thing you'll see in the parables. So it's like all the seeds that fell on this were taken by the birds. Well, that's not actually true in agriculture. If you walked on a gravel driveway and sprinkled seeds from one end to the other, some would still come up. Okay, most wouldn't. But you'd still have some sproutlings, but you have points of exaggeration in the parables to kind of drive home the point. If you plant seeds on fertile soil, they don't all come up. Some seeds are dormant, they die, I don't know what happens to them. We just seeded a little chunk of our grass this year. They don't all come up, like I seeded it three times. Um, Three different kinds of seed. And um, you still get bald spots, and it's good soil. So it's points of exaggeration, okay? Okay. So now let's talk about some interpretive guidelines for the parables. Um, Okay. Uh, Let's talk about meaning first of all. Meaning is not one trite, preachable sentence. Meaning can be multi-layered with the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Exegetically, the most basic point of the Good Samaritan is, to the lawyer, you're not, in fact, righteous. Okay? You're not righteous. That's the most basic point. But there's other things that we could talk about. Um, maybe a sub-meaning might be, uh, well, not all Samaritans are necessarily as bad as you think. Sometimes even unbelievers act better than believers. So there's all sorts of sub-meanings or or minor elements that one could pull out of that. Uh, We're called to help people who are in need. That could be like a sub-meaning. But it's not the main meaning. The main meaning of the the Good Samaritan is not help people on the side of the road. As true as that is, that's not the main meaning. That's secondary. The first meaning is, uh, not everybody who thinks they're righteous is righteous. And Jesus illustrates the point. That's the main meaning of it. So, you know, Good Samaritans' ministry has named themselves after that parable, and it's a great name, but they've actually taken the sub-sub-meaning of the parable and used it to identify their meaning. They haven't taken the main point of the min- of the parable and used it for their ministry, because the main point of the Good Samaritan is not sh- send shoeboxes to kids overseas for Christmas. It's, if you think you're righteous, you're not. And you need a savior and your actions prove it. See, that's the main point of the Good Samaritan. So when you talk about meaning, you look for the macro and then maybe some implications, we could call them, under that. Okay? Uh, We're going to take about a five-minute break. Um, Our table is bare, so uh, I don't know what happened tonight, but... um, there's a nice new water fountain out in the, uh, <laughs> in the hallway. It will take five minutes nevertheless, and uh, then when we flash the lights, we'll come back, come back together, okay? All right, so I'm just going to kind of go through these. Uh, just for the sake of time, I can't park on them for too long, but uh, make enough comments so you at least understand what's written, and then you can sort of review them uh, for yourself. So Leland Ryken suggests a fourfold process for this is very basic process for interpreting parables. First you do an analysis of the literary story, just let the story sink in. Read it, maybe reread it, internalize it. I'm sure we all know the difference between reading something and comprehending it and reading something and not comprehending it. Oftentimes we don't comprehend because we don't read in a focused way. We all have a little ADD in us. And reading it in a focused way um, is very important. If it's hard for you, just read it, reread it, reread it. Generally, if you kind of punish yourself by making yourself read it over and over again, eventually you'll actually be paying attention to it, I find. Then secondly, interpret the symbolic details. Examine the context. Remember, context, context, context. Anything in the context that's going to help you to understand clues to the characters, the events, what Jesus is trying to communicate. Third, determine the theme. Okay, utilizing or themes. U- use the interpretive stepladder we've discussed and try to find like what's its placement in the p- chapter, what's its placement in the book, what's the theme of the book. What's the overall message of the book? That's going to be helpful. And then when you talk about application, try to find, try to identify in a sentence or two, application then application now, okay, application then application now. Some further points: context will determine with, whether the s- details have spiritual significance or they're just there to add color. Do you understand the difference? Like, well, are they significant, or just sort of make the story interesting? So the, the mustard seed. And the tree, probably like the birds and the branches. This is just like color. It's added to sort of fill out the account. Or could there be a significant message to uh, you know the number of tit pigs that the prodigal son is feeding? Probably not. But the pigs are there for color. If somebody's done all that thinking for us, that's why we have concordance. There is one bottom line. This is how it should be read. Because Should we be doing that, interpretive stuff, yeah. Sort of yeah, I think so. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> everybody's a nobody. Everybody's a nobody. Yeah. Everybody's a nobody and everybody's a somebody. Yeah. Um Yeah, I mean that's I think you asked me that question one other time with regard to the scripture in general, which is a very broad question, and that is really you could ask the question why study the Bible when someone out there has already studied every element of it themselves? Um well, first of all, we, we 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 would require people to study every other subject. Um, you go to school and you relearn the math longhand. You just go get a calculator, but you relearn it longhand. You relearn the intricacies of things you'll never use, or most of us will never use details of grammar that the average person probably isn't going to ever use again. Um, a lot of theories and detailed information that again isn't necessarily um, necessary for all of us and but we teach we generally teach subjects in academia to as many people as possible so that general most people have a broad knowledge of the subject and some will rise to the surface and become teachers and propagators of the information so Uh, As language changes, culture changes, books are no longer published, information needs to be retaught, passed on. So just from an academic perspective, it's important for us to reteach and restudy and learn those techniques and tools so that those skill sets aren't lost in time. Um, But on a spiritual level, there is a sense in which we need to become self-feeders. Because when I stand before God, I... I cannot say, Well, I was told this by a guy with his PhD, or that's what my pastor said, or that's what my preacher said, or that's what I read in a book. I will stand before God by myself and give account for the things I believe. And uh therefore I want in my spirit and conscience to you know, as best as I can within our limited lifespan and time constraints to know why I know what I know and to be able to defend it. I can also say there's an apologetic dimension. So when we talk about the third leg of apologetics, the more we study the about this part connects with this part, and this part connects with this part. And as you know the parts, the whole becomes, uh, comes into view. In apologetics, you may not have an unbelieving friend say, defend me the nature of literary parables. But they may ask you a question that three steps back, an understanding of parables will help you to answer that question. So the broader your knowledge of the Bible, the more the other parts come into view and the more you're able to defend scripture. And another thing, Nancy, I think there's something to be said for the eureka moment when you discover it for yourself. Like there's something encouraging and spiritually um, illuminating about that where you're looking through something, you're looking through, you're, you're searching, you're searching, you're not sure, you're not sure, and all of a sudden, boom, as a result of your study and your, your time in the Word, you have that enlightening moment where it's like, oh, I'm going to hold, that's a gem, I'm going to hold on to that one to a greater degree than, um, you know, Aaron said it three months ago in a sermon. So I think there's several benefits to self-study. It's a good thing to um, read what seasoned Christians read. But like, like, with, uh, like almost anything, um, you're going to have several interpretations based upon a lot of different assumptions and a lot of different backgrounds. and um, You want to make sure you've done some of that work for yourself because the assumptions you bring to the text... May be very different than the assumptions that some guy writing a book you're reading brings to the text. So, I just think, you know, to avoid going down and misinterpreting, there, there is really no what way that should happen. Shouldn't there? if you do your research and you follow the concordance, because mm-hmm. it's here the way it should be. Like a lot of them are have been misinterpreted, as you said, yeah. Like Augustine. Yeah. In order to not go that route. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There the Eureka and all that is true. But wouldn't you want to maximize on the side of heading down the right path and not making that mistake? The thing of it is, is like with parables, um, I'm advocating a method of reading the parables that's actually fairly recent. It's fairly modern. When I say modern, I would say within the last 30 years. To the best of my knowledge, the very first books in human history have been published on reading the Bible as literature in light of their genre. That was not, like if my grandfather was in seminary, he would not have been taught that. He would not have been taught this method or this mode. And I think it makes a lot of sense and I think it's very helpful, but for whatever reason it just wasn't something people were thinking about. So relevant to our specific conversation tonight, the idea of reading the Bible as literature according to its genre, According to the guys that taught me hermeneutics, there were several of them. They would mostly be men in their 60s now. They were not taught that in seminary. They were taught different methods and different modes. And I remember Dr. Barker, Dr. Mayhew saying that this was revolutionary when guys like Leland Ryken started publishing books or Fee and Stewart on reading the Bible as a literature. They just never thought that way. And so it is sort of a, it's it sounds so Gra- like kindergarten level almost that like of course you would read it as a literature, people just weren 't doing that. I was never taught thinking back to like Sunday school or youth group i don 't ever remember anybody saying, Read the Bible as a literature, understand its literary genre i don 't ever remember that somehow they arrived at their conclusions i don 't know I just took their word for it, so we are teaching some stuff that uh is relatively new. Um, in hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. So, yep. I don't know if anybody else wants to add to it. I mean, anybody else got a better answer than me? You're welcome to share it. I think the process of study is sometimes more important, or other times equally important, or pretty close to as important as the outcomes or the result. There's just something about going through it and understanding it, and kind of it can be very affirmatory or confirmatory. So, so just a few more points. Then um, context, you're going to want to look at those uh, for color, uh, see if any of the details are significant. Uh, generally, this is point four, major characters or symbols in the parable contain significance. So the main ones, generally, you want to focus on those. Who is the sower? Who is the seed? Uh, and then uh, take note of the setting. Who's the audience? And any indication as to why Jesus uttered the parable? As you know already... Several times parables are delivered to very religious elite, so there's a very significant point to be taken from that. Observe the structure, note the characters, notice changes in action, points of reference, figures of speech, certain patterns, climax, shifts in action. So again, just the stuff you would the stuff you'd look for if you're reading an action book or. Uh, even watching a movie or a theatrical production, uncover the earthy details, cross-reference details with other biblical uses. uses. So if you don't know what a sower is, you know, get your concordance out, thumb around, see where other, what the ancient notion was of a sower or a shepherd or, um, you know, uh, back to the lost son. It's very significant that he wound up feeding animals but in particular, very significant that they were swine, right? But if you don't know anything about Jewish culture, you'd miss that. Well, what's the difference in if he's mucking around there or feeding chickens in a hen house? Try to understand the historical background. Um, Another point that's been brought out just as an example in the parable of the prodigal son is the imagery of the father running. You've probably heard this preached that... um, it may be the only instance in Scripture where God is portrayed as running. And it would apparently have been very rare for a Jewish patriarch to run anywhere. There were no Jewish joggers. Mm-hmm. They were like over 50. Um, part of your dignity, your respect, your poise was not to run. You just don't run. I mean, you're man in charge. And so for that father to be portrayed as running as a Jewish man, and then doubly for that father to portray God, there's some significance in that. But that's a historical thing, because in our culture, look outside, you see a guy that's seven years old running, you'd be like, hey, way to go. You wouldn't think he's, he wouldn't lose stature. You'd think that was kind of neat. Uh, eighth, determine the point of the parable. So look for clues within and without, especially at the beginning or the end. So the beginning will often tell you, Or the after story will tell you. And when I mean the beginning, I'm talking about those statements. The kingdom of God is like. Well, that tells you something about what he's trying to say. Relate the points to the overall teaching of the book. So I'm just suggesting in broad strokes, Matthew focuses on Christ as king. So you're probably going to get more kingly parables there. Luke, or sorry, Mark focuses on Christ as savior. So you're going to get some savior uh, parables there. Uh, Luke tends to focus on Jesus as the divine Son. So you're going to get maybe some parables that reinforce that. John focuses on the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. so you're going to get some maybe some deity type uh, parables there. Don't base major doctrines on parables alone, so that's your cautionary, my cautionary note. You don't start denominations on your interpretation of a parable. You don't build major doctrines off of parables. Uh, they can buttress major doctrines taken from epistles or commandment scripture, but be very careful. Apply the central truths to modern life if you can apply some of the peripheral secondary ones, do that too. remember my discussion the primary the secondary and then when you teach and preach them, try to teach or preach them as a whole unit rather than like in an epistle you can kind of go verse by verse and Parable, you can go scene by scene, character by character, but you generally don't go line by line because one line sort of has to be understood against the, the last line. So you, you preach it more like in a story-like, not necessarily in a story-like way, but with a story-like mindset, sort of going back and forth through it, pulling out the thoughts and focusing on the major themes. Okay. So that's, uh, that's our talk about parables Any comments or questions you have about parables you'd like to ask before we move into a little discussion on Proverbs? All right. Proverbs. This is a very important conversation to have, if for no other reason than people often interpret Proverbs as promises. And they are not. They are not promises. Write that down like in bold. If you've got a highlighter, put a highlighter through it. Underline it, circle it, put stars. They're not promises. If they are promises, the Bible is full of errors and lies. Because we could go through the, we could go through the parables or proverbs and show many examples. The guy says this is the case, and we know it's not, at least all the time. So what are proverbs then? Well, they're not fortune cookies either. Sometimes people think of Proverbs as fortune cookies. Find my fortune there. Now, some fortune cookies are proverbial, right? They have like a proverbial meaning to them. But um, most of them just kind of make you laugh because they're kind of silly. They're almost like, almost, they try to come across as more prophetic, if you will. So, a proverb then is a short general, memorable statement. Short, general, memorable statement. So the key word is general. It's generally true. Generally true. Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs. Most of them are not in Scripture. How do we know that? Well, because 1 Kings 4.32 tells us that. But he wrote a lot of Proverbs. And we know that he was known as a man of wisdom. And uh, he obviously was communicating that wisdom through books like the Song of Solomon, which is about romance and love, marriage, and Ecclesiastes, which is about the end results of hedonism and a pleasure seeking under the sun oriented life and the uselessness and futility of all that. But uh, he also wrote Proverbs. And um, he didn't write all of the Proverbs that we find in the book of Proverbs, but he certainly wrote um, a lot of them. So, Proverbs are a subgenre of, of um, wisdom literature. So, you have wisdom literature under that subgenre, proverb. Heidi Husted wrote Proverbs is uh, not for the general public. Proverbs is for God's people, calling them beyond the theoretical to the practical, beyond the intellectual to the actual beyond abstractions to application, and beyond beliefs to behavior. So the four key words there are practical, actual, application, and behavior. Here are some of the uh, the features that we see in the Proverbs. So go, go to the book of Proverbs in your Bible, and let's go to chapter 29 first of all. Verse 9. And if someone would like to read that, that'd be fine with me. Proverbs 29 9. There is no Can you picture it? Um, put that into your own words. What's he communicating there? And why? Okay, because you look like one. (laughs) In the Proverbs, by the way, you'll have uh, the word fool come up over and over again. And uh, uh, it is minimally symbolic of someone who rejects God. Um, Attached to that, a person who does not live wisely, kind of lives a futile life. So that he's, the, the, the fool is um, an archetype or reoccurring theme or image in the uh, Proverbs. And when you, when you read Proverbs like that, now if you're just kind of reading them all like chapter by chapter, it's very difficult to read the Proverbs like in large chunks. You sort of got to read them, think a little bit, read them, think a little bit. And when you read this one, you're sort of supposed to visualize it. And in this sense, the proverbs are supposed to be memorable and striking, or striking and memorable to you. Because they're supposed to recall to your mind situations that you've had like that. So the first thing I want to uh, uh, stress is that they're striking and memorable. The second thing... Is that there is simplicity to them. They're simple, but they're also kind of profound observations. So go to Proverbs 28, 1. And again, so I'll have you guys read these. Proverbs 28, 1. Okay, so you think of a criminal, the wicked. he's always looking over his shoulder, he's you know sleeps with a gun under his pillow, he's got bodyguards, he's never really at peace, and you know he dies ultimately in a hail of bullets in some dark alley. That's kind of the you know the, the stereotype. Um, if you're wicked, there's no real peace attached to that. And human history testifies to that. But the righteous are bold. There, there's a sense of boldness which flows from peace, too. You're as bold as a lion. Now, in some ways, that is an extremely simple observation. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to come up with that. But it's also profound. And the thing that most people like about the Proverbs is it has both of that. It's like, wow, I, Why didn't I think of that? Or Yeah, I I knew that. I know that's true. Maybe I just never put it in those words. So they're simple, but they're profound observations about life. And it's the person who's lived life with some experience that sees that. A 10-year-old doesn't know that. He can learn it by osmosis from reading the Proverbs. But a 10-year-old, they haven't been around long enough to necessarily make those observations, but everybody in this room has been around long enough. To make those observations because you've seen it in space and time. The Proverbs can also be very specific or they can be a little more general. So I'm going to give you an example of both. Proverbs 3.1 And then uh eighteen twenty one. Death and light then the power of the tongue, and those who fall and those who love it will eat its fruits. So notice the first one. It's a father speaking to his son. It's it's more specific. And in fact, the first three chapters or so are very much the father to the son, the father to the son, either real or imaginary. Either the sage to the spiritual son or the literal father to the literal son. It could be, some think that Solomon wrote this, and his intention was that like Rehoboam and his sons would read it, or it could just be like the father figure speaking to the son image or son figure. But some are very specific, some are a little more general. So the general is, you know, there's no specific person mentioned or type of person, it's just a general statement about the power of speech to tear down or to build up. And again, we all know what that feels like and what that looks like, and we've probably been uh, practitioners of both. Now the Proverbs are most often poetic... So one of the things you're going to want to look for if you read the Proverbs, let's go to Proverbs 20. You're going to w- want to look for parallelism, rhyme, and word plays. Now, rhyme is a little difficult because uh, it's a translation. But some translations will try, if they can come up with, like if there's rhyming words in Hebrew, they'll try to select rhyming words in English. And sometimes there's words like that available. Uh, but definitely parallelism. And wordplay. So I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, Proverbs 20 verse uh, 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. He's actually said the same thing twice. It's not two different thoughts. It's the same thought. But they're in parallel to each other. The first and the second, same thought, different words, reinforcing the idea. And then... Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. You're not wise if you're led astray by wine or by strong drink. And then go down to verse 30 of the same chapter, Proverbs 20, verse 30. And as you're reading it, pay attention to the first line and then the second line. So whoever has it, you can go ahead and read that for us. So, I mean, this is not a, you know, go beat people up proverb. But there is a sense in which when you're punished, it functions to, his language is clean away evil and clean the inmost parts. The first line is saying the same thing as the second line, but he uses two different clusters of words to do it. So look for that in in Proverbs. Not in all Proverbs, but most of them, the first line will prime you for the second line, which is saying the same thing. And if not, the first line will be in opposition to the second line. So the first will be the opposite of the second line. Um, Okay, so parallelism. Proverbs are also observations about human experience from the perspective of a sage. So again, this is where it's very life experiential type stuff. Proverbs 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. So it is the wise, the father, the mother, communicating to the youngin. And then let's go right to the end, Proverbs 31, verse 1. How does it begin? This is a cluster of, uh, of um, Proverbs from verse 2 to verse 9. But who, who's the speaker? King okay, King Lemuel. And where did he get this information from? His mom. No, Susie was very quick to mention that, his mom. Okay. So his mom is speaking to him as the seasoned sage into his life, and he listened, and now he's recalling, probably later in life, what he learned from his mother. So the Proverbs are like, if you want to learn, learn from someone else's mistakes and observations and experiences rather than going to the school of hard knocks yourself, which is what most of humanity tends to do. But that's why the Proverbs are designed to make you wise. Um, just one other thing. You'll also notice like uh, uh, just some neat literary techniques or devices in the in the Proverbs. So go to Proverbs 30 and um, verse 21. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. Now you're not supposed to be focused. What are the three? What are the four? Why is the three? Why are the four? It's what comes after three. Four. So there's like an inc- an increase, a moving upward of intensity. That's how those numbers function. Or go down to uh, verse 24. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. And then he lists ants, rock, badgers, honey, and lizards. And then notice verse 29. Three things that are that are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. These numbers are just sort of t- kind of take you up, take you down, take you up, take you down. They're just little, little techniques that the writer uses to sort of draw your eye and draw your attention in. They're not to be made a lot of, but they're nevertheless there. Again, in the Proverbs, you're going to, just a few other general observations, lots of emphasis on on the uh, the fool and the wise person. Uh, the fool, uh, chapter 30, verse 20, this is the way of the adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. That's foolishness. person can be an adulteress, and they don't really care. They don't even get it. There's no conviction there. She's the stereotypical fool. And if you go through, you'll see over and over again, those kinds of people. Uh, chapter 29, verse 11: A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Almost the kind of thing you'd expect from some, uh, you know, wise Buddhist sage. And get this, okay? This is interesting. Most of the proverbs, most of the proverbs, because they are so practical and so obvious and so common sense, could be restated in almost any religion. Because they're so common sense. And I, I just, you know, was kind of thinking about this on the fly, but might not be a bad place to take someone who you're trying to introduce to Christianity, to draw like some common connections, to show the applicability, the wisdom behind the Christian faith. Maybe a nice starting point, do a little study in the Proverbs, show them the richness of it, how practical it is. Because most people are going to go, yeah, 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 that, that makes sense, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But you can then bridge to something a little more edgy after that. So wise people in general, I mean, there's no such thing as a truly wise person that rejects the living God. But people who are thoughtful in general will will benefit from the Proverbs. If you want to make some money, put these on plaques in a quaint little store, and people buy them, even non-believers, even if they don't know their Proverbs, because they make sense out of life. Okay. Okay, general principles. Purpose. Proverbs are generalizations about life not to be taken as absolutes, but they teach probable truth. They're not promises, but principles to live by. I'll give you three examples. Proverbs 12, 27. Whoever is slothful, meaning lazy, right? Will not roast his game. But the diligent man will get precious wealth. Have you ever seen an unbeliever eating a roast? Of course you have. So it's not like every person that's lazy eats raw meat. But it's it, the, the, the idea is that laziness, you don't sort of go the extra mile, you don't put time and energy into things. But the diligent man or the, 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 uh, the diligent man, he's going to generally grow in wealth because he takes care of his possessions. He's strategic. He's thoughtful. He's not impulsive. See, But at the same time, you can meet some diligent people that are poor because <laughs> circumstances are such that they're just poor. Uh, the one I've mentioned to you before, uh, Proverbs 22.6, do all righteous parents have righteous kids? No. If you're a righteous parent, and you're blessed with righteous kids, hey, awesome. But there's no guarantees. In fact, the guy that wrote this had an unrighteous son. Uh, Proverbs 28, verse 18. Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. Well, are all righteous people safe? No. No. They are killed, they're murdered, they're subject to other people's whims and aggression, and even in ancient times. But generally speaking, generally speaking, people that get murdered are connected somehow to organized crime or foolish people or hang with the wrong people or they're involved in a series of broken relationships or on and on and on and on. There's usually a connection. Most people get murdered by someone they know, even in the country of Canada, most very rarely does someone get murdered by a stranger. I think, I don't even, don't quote me in this, but I think I even heard the statistics from the 80 percentile and up. That if you get murdered, it's probably somebody that you know. And not always, but there might be a connection to you hanging around with the wrong kind of people. So we're not saying if you're murdered, it's your fault. But there's a general principle there that the more seedy people you hang around with, the more you're exposing yourself to uh, risk. So, proverbially, like, proverbially, it's true. But it's not an absolute. You could get murdered by someone you don't know, right? Uh, then we have wisdom versus folly. Um, so throughout the Proverbs, you will observe the reoccurring theme of wisdom and folly, or foolishness. Wisdom is always related to what? Wisdom is related to what catchphrase? Um, No? Fear of the Lord. So remember, fear of the Lord. This is like the reverence of God. It's a reoccurring theme. In fact, it occurs 14 times. 14 times the fear of the Lord is connected to wise living. And uh, a rejection of God and his ways is connected 45 times in the Proverbs to foolishness or to, to folly or foolishness. So you could look at chapter 26, verse 7, chapter 29, verse 9, chapter 30, verse 32, for examples. Okay, a few different types. Again, you don't have to remember all these, but there's just a few. Numerical Proverbs, touched on some of those already. They drive home a truth using, generally using an X plus, uh, uh, how would I put this down here? I'll do I'll use a slash. Okay. be easier. So an X, an X plus 1 formula. So 3, 4, 4, 5. It's X add a 1. It's a numerical proverb. It's just a literary technique. And the greatest emphasis is usually upon the last item. Generally, this is the emphasis in the proverb. Proverbs 619 to 20 uh, Proverbs 6 16 to 19 contain examples. I already gave you some examples from Proverbs 30. Uh, comparison proverbs. They're just comparing one item to another to make a point. Chapter 12 verse 9, chapter 16, verse 19 22, one 25 twenty four have examples of that. An antithetical proverb is a proverb that sharply contrasts wise conduct with foolish living. Making, listen to this very clearly, making foolishness completely unappealing. See, the fool tries to make foolishness appealing. The packaging, the marketing, it's cool to be a sinner, right? But the proverbs do a masterful job making foolishness look very stupid and you're like, I don't want to go there. Yeah, that's dumb. So 10, 14, 12, 25, 15, 18 are examples of that. Parallelism, I've already mentioned that. You have the first line, the second line, we just call it AA primed or B, B primed. Same idea, but it's just slightly different. Taking it a, using a little different language, 17:27 and 18:20 are examples of that. Um, a discourse proverb is a slightly larger section, so that would be um, the uh, um, Proverbs 31. The Proverbs 31 woman. Every woman in the room who studies her Bible loves the Proverbs 31 woman and aspires to be like her, right? And you should. But that's like more than a verse. That, that's a long text. There's a lot there. So that's like a discourse proverb. proverb. And in fact, chapters 1 to chapter 7 are all discourse proverbs, and then it ends with a discourse proverb in chapter 31. So the little two-liner proverbs we're most familiar with, those are actually from chapter 8 to chapter 30. But before that and after that is like the discourse passage. So the first seven chapters are the father speaking to his son about Uh, Avoiding foolishness and sexual immorality and riches and all that kind of stuff. And then we have uh, a sixth kind. Um, They're called prescriptive generalizations. So they do more than state a truth. They try to influence your behavior using prescriptive language, direct language. Chapter 14 verse thirty one whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Not only does it make a, a general not only does it um, make general statements but it tries to influence your behavior by showing you the Curses are the rewards of those two actions. Again, you don't have to remember all these descriptions, but it'll help you to read the Proverbs, maybe with a little more focus. You'll look for those kinds of things in the Proverbs. And then descriptive generalizations are some Proverbs that state a truth with no direct uh, application given. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 5 the thoughts of the righteous are just the counsels of the wicked are deceitful but it doesn't tell you what to do with that you're just supposed to think about it and another example is chapter 11 verse 24 so interpretive guidelines remember that they are meant to teach probable truth they're not legal guarantees so pro- think probability not legal guarantees secondly they do they do not deny they do not deny exceptions Number three, they, they must not be interpreted by Western standards or we could just say modern standards. Um, many need to be, we'll just use the word translated, into modern practices in order to be understood. So when you're teaching them, if there's culturally loaded material in them, or here's another thing. References to animals that existed back then that don't exist today or they're not in our culture. You've got to sort of translate them if you're teaching them out. Because there's, there's cultural, I don't want to say baggage, but there's cultural nuances to them. that are very specific. You know, Palestine, circa 1000 BC, that aren't the same as... Uh, uh, here's an example. Talks about uh, one proverb. Think about wiping out a bowl and turning it over. We don't do that. We put them in dishwashers. But they would take their bowl, wipe it out, and just turn it over, and then they'd reuse it. You wipe a bowl and turn it over—that's gross. We wouldn't do that. I'm not going to eat at your house. Um, I, have, I had a friend who used to gross me out. He—he um, he was one of the most, or he is one of the most. Um, I'm talking about Dan very uh very detailed highly organized um kind of guy he actually is a an administrative pastor like very detailed doesn't forget counts every receipt you know retallies it uh so very like every his collar is always like perfectly straight every hair is in place his eyebrows are combed like it's just everything right but he used to let his dog lick out his bowls, and I just—that was just so disgusting to me. And I just—it I, didn't even suit his personality. So if you do that, please don't invite me over for dinner or get out <laughs> paper plates or something. Um, okay, so uh, number four, proverbs are meant to be meditated upon, so you have to mull them over. You cannot read like 15 proverbs a night unless you got about two hours. You just can't. Um, it's been recommended that you you can read a chapter a night for a month as part of your Bible reading schedule. That might work for like chapters 1 to 7 and chapter 31, but I don't think you can really benefit from a whole chapter of the Proverbs in a night because every one of them requires like 5 to 10 minutes of meditation. So just read little bits. Proverbs are meant to be read as a collection. So they are there, there's, there's, even though we're reading small portions, they're meant to be read as a collection because they speak to the breadth of human experience, not just money or not just relationships or not just our speech. They, they kind of cover the whole gamut of potential foolish actions that we can get involved in. Examine the form. So note the form of it. Are We talking about parallelism. Um, Proverbs may use exaggeration or various figures of speech. That's okay. Wrongly used, Proverbs can be used to, to justify a materialistic lifestyle. Why? They talk a lot about money, a lot about wealth, storing it up, accumulating it, amassing wealth, uh, making sure your kids get a good inheritance. So they they can be misunderstood to justify a materialistic lifestyle. That's not their intention. But again, if you don't sort of read them in context, they can be a sort of health, wealth, prosperity material. Well, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. If you give to the church, you're going to be rich. If you save it for your kids, God's going to bless you with more money. Well... Again, generally speaking, it seems as though when you're generous and giving and sacrificial and careful, generally speaking, it does seem that you increase your economic status over the years. Generally speaking. But it's not a promise. <laughs> you're not guaranteed your paycheck tomorrow. Um, so you got to be really careful you don't read them Materialistically, and finally, uh, proverbs, unlike some other scriptures, it's okay to examine them topically, for a particular teacher, or preacher, or explore a particular issue. So this is a great uh, thing for those of you that may be preparing lessons. Let's say you do want to teach a lesson on finances. Well, you can thumb through the proverbs and select several proverbs and here, there, and everywhere that relate specifically to finances piece them all together, teach through them, observe their styles and forms, and come up with some good proverbial truths that work today. Or you're dealing with a relation, your topic is relationships. You can have a good lesson plan or sermon or devotional extracting from the Proverbs at different junctures material about relationships. Um, You might be teaching on the use of the mouth and uh, speech and, and language. Again, you can go through it. Select the Proverbs from various chapters that relate to those and teach them topically. Whereas the rest of the Bible, it's a little, you can do that. You can preach topically through other scriptures, like a little scripture from Ephesians and one from Colossians and grab one from Matthew. But then you're always sort of running the risk of taking them out of context. Whereas from chapter 8 to chapter 31, every verse sort of stands on its own two feet they don't necessarily have to have the six verses before and the six after to be taken in context, more or less stand alone. So you're allowed to sort of pull and select and rearrange and um, teach them uh, out of their context because they still stand on their own two feet nevertheless. Okay? Any comments you want to make or things you want to state about the nature of Proverbs? Th- they are yeah youth leaders it's it's great it's a great book to to teach to young people I mean it is by definition uh, for young people I mean not that the seasoned Christian doesn't gain from it. But when you read it, you're supposed to be like, yeah, I know, I know. The young person's like, really? It's supposed to be kind of like new to them. Um, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Notice how the Proverbs use the words that parents tell their kids never to use. (laughs) (laughs) I remember years ago, uh, I might have told you this, I was preaching a sermon, and I, I used, I think in a very biblical way, the word stupid, and I not have a problem using it. But this mom comes up to me after with her little kid and goes, he's got a question for you. <laughs> Pastor Aaron, why did you say stupid? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's actually a biblical word. <laughs> in yeah, in context. <laughs> I'm still looking for, you're a stupid idiot. I don't see that one. Either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just. Okay, uh, just before we leave, here's, here's a, um, I don't know if you, you might want to share a couple too, but memorable Proverbs. Like a ring, a gold, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. That is an interesting (laughs) proverb, maybe even somewhat offensive to some people. Um, Here's a memorable one which has been uh, kind of debated with regard to the use of alcohol. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted but give strong drink to one who is perishing and wine to those who are in bitter distress let them drink and forget their pro- uh, poverty and remember their misery no more there's a lot of <laughs> so, so. <laughs> yeah i actually received some advice along those lines in life group on sunday night and there's three people in the room that know what they ta- know what i'm talking about for well, the first time in my pastoral ministry, I had a congregant recommend that I start drinking more beer. So, so I mean, you can kind of have fun that, uh, what was that? More? Yeah, I try to limit it to about a two-four a week. Yeah. So you can sort of thumb through the Proverbs and find those little nuggets yourself, and, and they, are, they are humorous, um, but they stick. They speak to, you know, the lives within which we live, so. So we're done. Um, I hope this course has uh, benefited you. And again, there's a lot of other genres to explore and look at. You'll to study those out for yourself. But um, try to read the Bible according to its you know, literary constructs, and you will benefit. It'll become a lot clearer to you. And again, the more you do it, the more natural it will become. You don't have to remember all like the lists of rules and guidelines. You'll just kind of know how to do it intuitively, okay? Okay, so thanks for coming. Enjoy the rest of your evening.